Hey everybody, uh, this is Les Newsom. Uh, what you're usually used to hearing at this time uh, is my voice coming on to read the scripture from Leviticus at RUF on Wednesday night. Uh, but to due to some operator error, that is my error, the recording uh, did not actually record this week, and so I've gathered a few of uh, uh, volunteers here with me to actually just run through the audio of the lesson again. We're going to teach it again and let this suffice for all of you faithful podcast people out there. So so bear with me. It's a little bit of a different venue, but uh, I thought we'd plow through it anyway. Uh, our scripture reading this week came from Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus 25, 1 through 22. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves, and for your hired servant and the sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to, its, to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. The fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the jubilee. And he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. And if the years are few, you shall reduce the price, for it is the number of the crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Therefore you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year, if we may not sow or gather in our crop? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the, the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when the crop arrives. This is God's word. You know, I'm actually uh, one of those people who never actually thought that I would be a minister. And so I'm regularly surprised by these certain family realities that come with being a minister. You see, uh, my life is financially tied to other people's giving. Uh, th that when they gave that money and dropped it in the plate, as it were, it had Jesus' name on it. <laughs> in other words, Jesus' money pays for my bills. Now look, there's a long list of 
personal neuroses that come with this that I, I promise I won't bore you with. But one of the struggles that I've had is with my children. You know, as children will oftentimes do, they'll find themselves having to do something in my household that's really probably the most difficult thing in the world to do, which is what we call sharing. Um, and I've learned that my children have no natural capacity for it whatsoever. And so when I come home and I find, you know, one child withholding something from their sibling because, you know, it's mine, um, I have to go through this little speech that I have where I say, children, you have to understand everything we have was given to us. We have to learn to share it with others. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking to yourself, oh, come on, Les. That's a little too easy, isn't it, to pick on your four <laughs> defenseless children? Uh, but look, I'm just as guilty of this, if not more. Uh, I, I don't know how many of you had the unfortunate uh, experience of being near me uh, during the month of April of last spring. Uh, we, had a, we had a family tragedy in that our air condition broke. Uh, now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with <laughs> what that means to your air conditioner. When, when, the, when the air conditioner repairman comes over to your house and says, well, we're going to have to replace the whole thing. That is a mind-blowingly expensive proposition, one that I had no idea how much it was going to cost. Um, but I was on the phone with my, um, uh, sort of my, my sort of boss who oversees the stuff that we do here in RUF, and I was, I was complaining to him. I was whining, just as I did to many of you last spring. And his response completely froze me because he looked at me in response and said, yeah, he goes, it really does make you kind of wonder why Jesus would want to spend his money on a new air conditioning. <laughs> Y'all, it completely took the wind out of my sails uh, when he said that because he reminded me that all of our money is actually his. Look, y'all, we're coming to a passage tonight in Leviticus 25 that illustrates a fundamental human problem, and that is getting possessive about things that aren't ours. I want you to imagine a circumstance here for a moment that you, as a college student, landed like the, jo the job of the century. Let's say there's a very wealthy person here in Oxford that wants for you to house sit for him while he's away for the entire semester. You have his house for the entire semester. Very wealthy individual. It's a huge house, very opulent. And he tells you that everything is yours. Uh, the house, the pool, uh, the food in the fridge, uh, the, the, the family credit card for when you, you empty out the fridge. Everything is yours to use completely at your discretion. <laughs> you have discovered the greatest job in the universe, and you walk waltz around uh, as joyful as you've ever been, right? But midway through the semester, you get a phone call from the owner who informs you that there's actually someone else that he said, look, I, I want somebody else to live with you, T, too. He's coming to uh, live in the house and share the same things that you have. Now, look, you're a liar if you don't think that you're not going to feel some sense of disappointment when he says that. To think, I don't know, I, I kind of wanted it to myself. Okay, so here's my question in this lesson. What is that instinct? What is it inside of us that makes us want to possess things that the truth of the matter were just given to us? Look, you've got to remember that the book of Leviticus was written to a people who had just undergone about 400 years, not just of physical suffering, though that certainly was part of it, but of economic suffering. And so not only are they uh, st stressing through pathologies of, uh, of social and, and emotional nature, but God also knows that they're struggling financially as well. Uh, and I think the reasons of this are apparent in what the Scripture teaches us. Like, 
Look, if you go back to Adam and Eve, you'll, you'll, you'll find out that God actually gave Adam and Eve two things. On the one hand, he gave Adam and Eve each other. That is, there was a sexual uh, existence to their nature. Uh, and he also gave them, though, secondly, the garden. In other words, he gave them possessions in order to tend and to keep those things. Look, when sin, therefore, enters the situation in Genesis chapter 3, does it not make sense that those two very fundamental aspects of our humanity are going to be the ones that we have the most trouble with? Look, y'all, sex and money are fundamental problems that we wrestle with, and God knows that. And so what he does is, is he builds into the calendar of all things a regular dose of spiritual antidote to counter the, iner the inertia of your own soul to destroy itself economically. See what, do you see what I'm saying? God is actually saying that there will be a bent to your soul. It's, it's almost like your, your car being out of align, alignment. Uh, has this ever happened to you where you're, you're driving down the road and you sort of lean over to grab your iPod or something and all of a sudden, you know, the car is leaning over into the side of the road. Why? It's out of alignment. It sort of naturally, when you take your hands off the wheel, pulls to the side. God's saying the same thing about this in dealing with your finances. This cannot go unnoticed in your life. And so therefore, he takes efforts to do as much. Hey, look, what I want to do in this lesson is to look at three lenses to understand this issue of what God says. I want to look, first of all, at the Old Testament economics. Secondly, I want to look at New Testament economics. And then finally, we want to take a look at God's spiritual economy. Okay? Old Testament economics. New Testament economics and God's spiritual economy. Okay, first of all, look, look at this passage again. Uh, all of the commentators that I uh, refer to said that Leviticus 25 is probably some of the most radical social economic ideas in all of the Bible. Uh, and they're radical because they show us a God who is radically committed to his people's freedoms. Look, the, the system from which they just got released was a foreign economy. And they were enslaved economically there. But Yahweh knows, the God of these people knows, that any economy is capable of enslaving its own. Any economy that goes unchecked is capable of enslaving its own. So what he does is he goes to this, and mind you, this is important to remember, uh, that it's an agrarian society. And this agrarian society uh, had land, of course, as its chief source of life and sustenance. Well, the question was, what would happen if somebody fell on hard times? There was a bad years of, year of crop, or perhaps someone made some foolish decisions. Well, what if they had to sell it in order to survive? Could they get it back? Uh, what if they actually had to sell themselves into slavery in the process? What Yahweh understood was, is that when poverty comes into a society, the family, uh, social order, uh, Every aspect of, it, of a person's humanity will be touched when poverty comes in. And so God looks and institutes this way of his people being, uh, keeping from having to be dragged into desperation. And so what he issues is this shockingly bold way to ensure that no Jew would ever have to re-enter that economic slavery. So here's what he did. The first thing he did was what he said, look, every seventh year... Uh, is a year off for the land, okay? No planting, no growing, no harvesting. And, and during that year, you're not to do anything, nothing. And the way in which you'll survive that year is I, you're going to have to trust me, God says, that in the sixth year, I'm going to give you enough to last through the next year and the year after that while you're planting in the, in the eighth year. 
Okay, so that's the first one. But then secondly, he said, add up seven of those seven-year blocks, giving you 49 years. And the year after that is going to be a year of a total party. I want you to take it off. I want you actually then to um, cancel everyone's debts that they had. And I want people to return to their land that was partial to them from the very beginning. Families would be reunited if you had to sell yourself into slavery or indentured servitude. You would go back into the freedom that you enjoyed from the very moment that you walked out of Egypt. Now look, I want you to think about the shocking brilliance of this plan because God is saying that the year of Jubilee was insurance. That every Jew, at least once in their lifetime, would have a complete second chance to start over. No matter what happened in life, no matter what the decisions you make, at least once in your lifetime, you would get a chance to see your lives be brought back, even if utter destitution happened to you. Now, that was the benefit to the poor. But think of the other benefit. It actually even helped uh, the rich sort of guard themselves from their own greed. Uh, Think about how differently you would think about your investments if you knew that, you know, in X amount of years, I'm going to have to give all this stuff back anyway, right? What it meant is that you had to build something into your cultural holidays to actually keep from putting all of your eggs in the basket of financial security. Look, y'all, this is the struggle that we're dealing with. If you're going to get to know the God of Christianity, you need to realize that the Bible's God is a champion of the poor and the destitute. He is a God who requires his people to show compassion to all He is absolutely opposed to reducing another person to slavery. He forbids the ruthless management of slaves and employees. He resists the concentration of property into the hands of the few. And he sets limits on the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. Look, y'all, this God is the enemy of selfish exploitation, both of property and of people, whichever way it goes. Uh, That's Christianity as it's set in front of you. And the reason why I mention this is I get the sense that in especially a place like Ole Miss, it's extraordinarily conservative in its sort of campus worldview, that for some of us, we're going to have to realize that some of God's principles that he lays out in his word are at direct odds with some things that we always associate with the American dream. That for some of us, we've not understood that the American dream is nothing more than a place for my greed to actually be displayed and for me to make as much as I can without any eye to the poor. And God from the very beginning in the Old Testament says, that will not mark my people. Now, at this point, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, this is all fun and good. Uh, that's the Old Testament people. Come on, Les, we're, we're New Testament Christians. We ignore all that stuff, right, right, right? Uh, Well, look, take a breath, because when we come to the second point about New Testament economics, you're going to find that there's more surprises at heart. Now, I'm not going to tell you what I will be honest to you some people try to do, which is to dream of a day when we can actually have these economic checkpoints back again, as if we're going to somehow take the year of Jubilee and bring it back into our own century. Uh, I think that's unthinkable for a number of different reasons. First of all, we don't live in an agrarian society anymore. Uh, These laws were there and had their basis in a very specific historical uh, epoch. And we just, we don't live in an agrarian society anymore. The times are different. They don't apply. But second, we also know that when when Jesus showed up on the scene, uh, there was a fundamental shift in the way in which he began to teach 
about the nature of the people of God. Look, y'all, in the Old Testament, these these people were, I, I guess for a lack of a better way to put it, a, a socioeconomic entity. It, it, it was a nation state, if you will, that was defined by an ethnicity. Well, when Jesus comes along, he says, look, that was okay for nurturing God's truth up until this time. But now that I've come, I'm changing the nature of the people of God from this sociopolitical thing to, to, to the spiritual kingdom of God. In other words, the nature of my people now will be that of a spiritual kingdom. And again, there's a lot more to be said about that, but just suffice it to say that that change from a political thing to a spiritual thing means we can't adopt these Old Testament rules unthinkingly. However, (laughs) you cannot make the mistake of thinking that therefore Jesus' instructions about his people's personal approach to their own economics is somehow less radical. Uh, People look and say, I want the friendly economic Jesus rather than the old mean Uh, Yahweh from the Old Testament. Hey, look, you're not paying attention if you think that. Look, the ethical anchors of Leviticus are are repeated in the New Testament for Christians. Look, you know, a a couple of weeks ago, we looked at at Luke 10, 25 in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And and Jesus there confronts a rich man who was trying to, in Jesus' words, justify himself. And so what he tells the story of is a man who met all of the emotional, physical, financial and medical, even transportation needs of a poor man who was dying on the side of the street. So what's Jesus saying? (laughs) Jesus is saying that the bare minimum of living out God's law is social work. Feeding, sheltering, liberating, bringing about justice. This is where Christian discipleship happens. And y'all, this is radically different from what you're typically thinking. For most Ole Miss students, we, especially those of the Christian stripe that would actually come to a thing called RUF, we tend to think that where I primarily struggle in my Christian discipleship is in my quiet times um, or in my uh, Bible reading or, or perhaps in my prayer life, maybe in trying to witness to others. Now, don't get me wrong. Those are all absolutely essential things to the Christian life. But all of it will frustrate you if it's not done for the purpose of meeting the needs of the poor. God is saying, I want my people to be the ones who are loving their neighbors. And that means that there's going to be a measure of self-sacrifice in them. Look, in the New Testament, it doesn't get ramped up near as much as it does in the book of James. Have you ever read some of this? Listen to James chapter 1, verse 27. James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Listen very carefully. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Hear what James is saying? If you want to know what real religion is, it's about feeding widows. It's about dealing with orphans. Now, you thought that was something. Then in chapter 6, 1 through 5, he says this. He says, okay, come now, you rich, Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Look, look, y'all, that verse that I just read is like in the Bible. 
And that's the reason why I started this sermon the way that I did. Look, y'all, from cover to cover in the Bible, God assumes that you're going to be struggling with your money because our desire for possessions goes deep into who we are and it shapes our identity. And so our desire for these things, God is saying, don't be naive. Protect yourself from your own heart in this way. Start to give it away. Become a radically generous person, God says, and your money will not tyrannize you the way in which it oftentimes will if you leave it alone. Give it away. Give it away in eye-popping amounts, as a matter of fact, because only then are you going to be able to counter this inertia in your heart to be enslaved by your money. Okay, (laughs) settle down for just a second. Anybody feeling guilty? (laughs) Well, look, stop feeling guilty because that brings us to our third and final point, a point about God's spiritual economy. Uh, You know, a number of years ago, I heard Tim Keller talking about um, uh, a sermon in Proverbs 19, uh, verse 17, where, where the line reads, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. Uh, look, you do realize that um, there are banks in our world, this is actually a common practice, who will actually redline lower income communities because they realize that they're, they're not going to be able to pay those loans back. Does that make sense? That They'll write a red line underneath which you're not allowed to give a loan if they're under a certain uh, uh, yearly income uh, because they won't be able to get their money back. Look, y'all, God is saying, don't you dare redline anybody. Why? Because a gift to the poor is a gift to me, and I'm going to enrich you. Look, y'all, here's the point, and, and, and it's the really, it's the huge encouragement here. God identifies with the poor in intimate ways. So much so in Matthew 25, Jesus says that on judgment day, God's going to stand up and sit on the throne and say, look, I was hungry and I was thirsty and, and, and you were the ones who gave me something to eat and something to drink. And of course, at that time, everybody's confused saying, well, Jesus, when did we do these things? What are you talking about? And he says, in the same way that you've done it to the least of my brethren, you've done it unto me. Why? Because I was in them. Look, y'all, this is, this is the essence. What Keller says is, is Jesus is not saying that being generous to the poor is the way that you get a relationship to God. What he's saying is, is the way to tell if you've got a relationship to God is how you help the poor. Look, if you're a Pharisee, then you look at the poor and you wonder to yourself, man, get a job. But if you're poor in spirit, you look in the poor as if you're looking in a mirror. Y'all think about this. <laughs> Where in the Bible do you see in Jesus' ministry, Jesus embracing the deepest poverty? Where do you see him without any earthly comfort, robbed of all human resource? Where do you see Jesus stripped naked? Where do you see him enslaved? Y'all, you see it on the cross. In other words, the deep dynamic of change in the Christian life is when you begin to see Jesus up on the cross bearing your poverty. In other words, that Jesus is taking onto himself all of the poverty that we struggle with, who who is granting us ultimate resources in the midst of our emptiness, ultimate uh, security that covers our shame in our nakedness. That's what the image of nakedness is in the Bible. It's It's an imagery of shame. Jesus says, I'm bearing that. And he comes to us in our slavery to offer freedom from our addictions because we found our security in him. 
Do you notice how many times in our reading tonight in Leviticus 25 where God said, and you will live in the land secure. That's what God's talking about. But he's talking about it because it came to us in the riches that come to us in the cross. Look, y'all, this is the point. The Bible says that God, who was rich, became poor so that he could make you rich. <laughs> this is such a huge countercultural Christian idea. Look, y'all, the, the illustration that I've used for years, and many of you have heard it a number of times before, but it bears repeating. I, I want you to imagine that at RUF one night, you, you come and, and you want, you know, $10 to, to get yourself a T-shirt. We're, <laughs> we're selling T-shirts in RUF, right? It only costs $10. Go get yourself one. Uh, but you don't have, a friend of yours doesn't have the money to afford one, so they come up to you and they're like, look, could you loan me $10? I want to go get me one of those T-shirts, but I just don't have it on me right now. Well, you're feeling kind of magnanimous on that moment, so you're like, sure, I'd be happy to give it to you. And so you loan the guy 10 bucks. Okay, then you head on home wondering if you'll ever see your money again. But the next morning, you hear this knock on your door, right? And you're sort of, in a groggy way, you sort of stagger to the front door. You open the door, and there stands Ed McMahon, or whoever it is these days that's giving away these checks, right? With a giant check with a bunch of zeros on the end. You have just won the lottery. You are as wealthy as you could ever be. School schmool, you're thinking to yourself. I don't need to finish. <laughs> I can do whatever it is that I want to do financially. I have landed. I'll never want for money ever again. Okay, in the midst of your dancing around your living room in joy, uh, all of a sudden you hear a uh, your phone rings, your cell phone rings. And you pick it up and you answer, it's your friend from the night before. And he says to you, oh, look, I am so sorry that I've not been able to get back, get it back to you. Um, I've had a lot of things going on with me uh, uh, this particular uh, uh, day. Look, would it be okay if, I, if you gave me just a little more time to get that money back to you? Now, what are you going to say to that guy? You're going to say, $10? Are you kidding? Uh, look, don't you understand? I just won the lottery. I will never have to want for money ever again. Uh, $10? Do you need more money? Look, y'all, has anyone ever been tempted <laughs> to mistake your Christianity for a party? I, I think that's worth all of us asking. Has anyone ever looked at the way in which you approach life, especially how you approach your possessions, and said, now there's a person who is secure. There's a person who is acting out of their wealth. My friends, people who have won the lottery don't worry about the little petty ante things that they've got to pass out to others. So do you see what Jesus is trying to do? Jesus is trying to say, look, I am the extra zeros on the end of that check. I've not brought you into poverty, but for most of us, that's what we see Jesus as being. Jesus is hanging over us to, to accentuate our poverty, not to relieve it. Look, y'all, what if Jesus, what if the grace that Jesus brings is actually sweeter <laughs> than the fear of being financially secure that I'm wrestling with, that I'm even killing myself in college to get a good major so I can get good grades, so I can get a good job, so I can be financially secure. What if Jesus is better than that is simply what I'm asking. Bottom line is, Jesus is saying, I am your jubilee. 
In Luke chapter 4, he stands up and he reads from Isaiah and he reads this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and, here's the phrase, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see what he's talking about, don't you? He's talking about Leviticus 25. Look, y'all. Have you ever had one of those days where you look by and thought that it was just a waste? Have you ever had a, a, a week that went by where you thought, I, I, what did I do this week? I don't know about you, but I've had whole semesters where I've gotten to the end of it and thought, I didn't do anything worthwhile this week, not a doggone thing. Has it ever crept on the inside, though, even further in, where suddenly you begin to toy with these, uh, these fearful thoughts that maybe my entire life has been a waste? Have you ever thought to yourself, you know, I just wish that I could start over? Because what Jesus is saying to us in Leviticus 25 is, okay, today, yes, can be your jubilee, and tomorrow, and next year, and whenever you need it. Because those are the kind of riches that Jesus is bringing to his people. Rich people, to make us rich so that we can benefit those around us. Look, y'all, you got to consider that an invitation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you then grant us the grace of being generous people? Not because we walked out of here feeling extra guilty or because we were terrified at what you would do if we weren't. But Father, rather give us the grace out of riches, out of actually joy that you've granted us, out of realizing that we are absolutely safe and secure in you, that you will provide all our needs. And Father, out of that excess, out of that joy that you've granted us in the cross, by making us rich, will you give us the privilege of making other people rich too? Lord, would you send all of the people who, who, who struggle for you the spirit of grace to get those riches? Would you do that for us? For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.